Father, it was uh, in Job that the statement is made that man is born to trouble. Sometimes we get tired of the trouble. Sometimes we get tired of the... uh, Well, we just get tired. We're, We're tired of dealing with it. What we'd like to have is some peace. We'd like to have some, um, we'd like to have a break from the trouble. We deal with trouble and we think that it's handled and we think that it's contained and then it breaks out again. And once again, we have to trust you. Once again, we are reminded of how needy we are and how dependent upon you that we are. We are dependent upon you literally for every breath that we take. It is comforting to know that before we are born, you have a plan for us, and that plan contains an allotment of breath for our days and hours on the earth. Uh, You you have uh, called us into existence, Before we existed, you knew us. You said to Jeremiah, before I formed you, I knew you. And our days on the earth are numbered. And uh, as we walk this earth, we encounter trouble. As Christian men, we encounter trouble and difficulty and stresses and strains. But it is these troubles these stresses, these afflictions that keep us on our knees and keep us dependent. We we have been so remarkably favored. We have been given so much that we take it for granted. We don't mean to, but we just do. But it, 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 it is the trouble that keeps us honed in. It it is the trouble that reminds us that apart from you, we can do nothing. But sometimes we get tired of the trouble. Sometimes we get weary. Sometimes we lose heart. Sometimes we get overwhelmed. But uh, the psalmist said, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. We get troubled, we get overwhelmed, but you know exactly where we are and you know exactly what you're doing. And you are never troubled about what is going on with us because you have a plan and you are working. What we need, Lord, is hope and what we need is encouragement because we are walking by faith. We are thankful for the truth of your word, the firm foundation of your word. We can't live off of feelings. Uh, We have to live off what is true. That's what enables us to deal with reality as men and handle our responsibilities. So we come back to you tonight. We have different guys that are dealing with different issues, but everybody's got trouble in their life and in their heart. We ask that you would calm the storm and calm the trouble tonight as we focus on you. Put hope back in our hearts. Put courage back in our hearts. Uh, Restore our souls. Restore us. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. Help us to cast the trouble and the burden upon you because we know that you care for us. Strengthen our faith tonight. Remind us that you're in charge of our lives and you haven't forgotten us. Lead us on a level path. Maybe we've been up and down this week. Level us out. Stabilize us with truth. Calm our hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So since September now, we've been in Hebrews 11, and we are making our way towards the end of this chapter on faith. It's God's Hall of Fame. 
And we've been in Hebrews 11.32 for several weeks. Because as he brings this section to an end, he is mentioning different men just in passing. Doesn't have time to go into any details as he did earlier on some of the men, like Abraham. But he is just giving them a quick one mention in Hebrews 11.32. And he's just worked his way through the book of Judges by mentioning Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. And, and now he's transitioning historically out of the book of Judges, and he's going to make his way into uh, 1 Samuel, because look at 1132, what more shall I say, for time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. And then he's going to start wrapping up and talking about their experiences and, well, we'll get into that in the next few weeks. But, but the next guy that he mentions that we give our attention to, uh, we're just going to talk about tonight because the man that he mentions that we come to next is David. And if you were with us last year, we spent most of last year looking at David's life. So if you've been a part of this study, you've got some history with David and the, the events and the chronology of his life. David was the second king of Israel. Um, Samuel, uh, that he mentions in Hebrews 11.32, uh, he mentions of David and Samuel. Second, uh, Samuel is really the transition man from, from judges into the period of the kings. But you know this, that David was not the first king of Israel. He's the most famous king of Israel, but he wasn't the first king of Israel. He was the second king of Israel. The first king of Israel was not David. The first king of Israel was Saul. And it's interesting to me, uh, in this hall of fame, in this hall of faith, these men who walk by faith, Hebrews eleven six, 6, without faith it's impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you read this chronology and you get into 1132 and he jumps immediately from Jephthah and he jumps to David, the obvious question is, well, David was the second king. How come the first king isn't in here? And it's a very simple answer. The reason Saul, the first king of Israel, is not in God's hall of fame is simply this. Saul did not walk by faith. That's it. David was a man who walked by faith, who was applying as he went through life. David was applying Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is. And we've made this point several times. It doesn't say without perfection, it's impossible to please God. Because no one is in that state of perfection. We are all flawed. We have all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. My gosh, David is famous. And, and David is really, when you think David, you immediately think Bathsheba. Because when David fell, he fell, he fell hard. But yet David was a man after God's own heart. So it, and we've titled this study from fame to shame. I, I mentioned earlier as guys were coming in, that um, a man who many of us uh, have been touched by his life, Dr. Howard Hendricks, he went home to be with the Lord early this morning. Um, 88, 89 years old, had been teaching at Dallas Seminary for 60 years. Um, touched a lot of people. An incredible communicator. Uh, if you get a chance later tonight or tomorrow, go to the Dallas Seminary website, just dts.edu. And there's a great tribute and a biographical sketch of Dr. Hendricks. Um, he was born in, was it 24, 1924? And 
according to the sketch, he has a very interesting story. Because um, it was his birth that drove his parents apart. And they divorced. If you can imagine such a thing. People didn't divorce back in the 20s. But his parents did. And um, apparently having a child, it was a tenuous marriage, but having a child just blew things apart. So he was raised by his mother, um, really without much influence from his father, was so out of control as a young boy that his fourth grade teacher said, he's going to wind up in jail. <laughs> That's kind of funny to think about, isn't it? Because he kept a lot of guys out of jail. By, the, by, by his commitment to Christ and by his life and by his influence, uh, he came to know the Lord, changed his life. Um, you know, a lot of times we think that, uh, you know, it's a wonderful thing to have a positive role model. But, you know, oftentimes you can learn as much from a negative role model as you can from a positive role model. A, a, a lot of times when you look at someone's past, you look at someone like Howard Hendricks, you would not associate him with that kind of situation in his background. But uh, didn't have that positive a role model as a father but he became quite a positive role model as a father and a mentor and a teacher and an elder. Um, if you will, he kind of went from fame to shame. Uh, he went from shame to fame, you see? Um, kind of a shameful background. But the Lord got a hold of him, and then other, other men began to influence him. And then he, in turn, began to influence others. And you see, this is how it works. Um, because, because you have not had a great role model in your own life, in your home, doesn't mean that you were shackled to repeat that. That can be a great impetus. In other words, you just do the opposite of what you saw. You see? So if you grew up in a home where uh, uh, your father struck your mother, uh, that tends to be generational. But you were not doomed to repeat that. See, someone has to put a new link in the family chain. Um, the Apostle Paul said, you follow me as I follow Christ. And this is what happened with Dr. Hendricks. He began to follow Christ. He began to look at other men who were following Christ, and he was influenced by them. It, it's always interesting to me to, to see the... Um, the generations, and the generations of influence. There, there was a, Howard Hendricks went to Dallas Seminary, and there was a guy also at Dallas Seminary, another young guy by the name of Ray Stedman. And Ray Stedman and, um, was married, and, and Howard and Gene Hendricks were married, and they were friends, lived in the old seminary housing without any air conditioning. And uh, they became very good friends. And then Dr. Hendricks stayed at Dallas Seminary and taught, and Ray Stedman went out um, eventually to start Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto. But before Ray Stedman went to start Peninsula Bible Church, he served as a youth pastor in California for a guy named uh, McGee. I think that was his name. J. Vernon McGee, who you can still listen to on the radio today. You see. And J. Vernon McGee was pastor of Church of the Open Door in downtown Los Angeles, which is where the Bible Institute of Los Angeles started, known as Biola University, where my kids went to school. It's just interesting to me. So Ray Stedman was a young guy, and Howard Hendricks was his buddy. And Stedman goes and learns from J. Vernon McGee, and then Stedman, he goes and starts this church in Palo Alto, and then about 15 or 20 years later, here comes this young buck from El Campo, Texas, <laughs> going to Dallas Seminary. And uh, so 
he's there because of Howard Hendricks, and Hendricks says, hey, you ought to go out. You want to be a pastor? You ought to go out to California, spend some time with Ray Steadman. So Chuck Swindoll goes out and spends time with Ray Steadman. It's generational. Isn't it interesting? Just interesting how God works. Because young guys are influenced by older guys, and then those young guys, they get old. And then there are younger guys coming behind them. Ah, it's just life. Uh, so Dr. Hendricks went home to be with the Lord today. He's finished his race. And to be absent from the body. This is the best day of his life, was today. Yeah, that's great, isn't it? So he's finished his race. We're still running our race. Looking at some of you guys, you only have a few days left, some of you guys. <laughs> Looking kind of haggard tonight, guys. Better get that vitamin B12 going. We don't know how long we have, do we? We just don't know. I mean, you just don't know. Uh, these men in Hebrews 12, they finished their race. We're still running our race. Um, we're learning from their lives, and we're learning from the teachers, the, the, the teachings of Hebrews chapter 11. And we come to David. When you look at David, and he's in God's Hall of Fame, you've got to ask the question, he was the second king. Why wasn't the first king in there? And it all goes back to Hebrews 11.6. Walking by faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Walking by faith is believing that God will be faithful to you. It's believing that God will perform for you what he has promised. It's believing that God cannot lie. It's not that we are faithful, it's that he is faithful to us. You see, it comes down to this. David is in God's hall of faith because David walked by faith. Saul is not in God's hall of faith because Saul did not walk by faith. It's just that simple. We know a lot about David. Uh, I want to focus on something tonight out of his life. First Chronicles chapter 12. Because First Chronicles 12 gives us a, a glimpse into these two different kings. One man walked by faith, another man didn't walk by faith. Although they held the same position, they uh, gave allegiance to the same God verbally, but their hearts... They were different men in their heart of hearts. In, in 1 Chronicles 12, and this may, it's always, this seems like kind of an obscure place to begin. But in 1 Chronicles 12, it says this. Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag while he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. Boy, we're going to sink our teeth into that tonight, aren't we? Sounds like exciting stuff, doesn't it? You know, it actually is exciting. One of the things, one of the classes that Howard Hendricks taught for 60 years at Dallas Theological Seminary, he taught a class called Bible Study Methods. And one of the principles of Bible study that he would hammer and hammer and hammer and hammer was the principle of observation. And what Dr. Hendricks would suggest was that if you were going to study a passage in the Bible, his first suggestion would be, and, and let's say the paragraph the actual paragraph, uh, you, you know, because there's an immediate context. You want to take something in its context. And if you look at your Bible, most of your Bibles, you will see that uh, chapter 12, verse 1, runs down to verse 7, and then you get to verse 8. And many of you, in verse 8, the number 8 will be bold. Why? It just, because that's just how they show a paragraph. A paragraph is a new body. So you get the new, there, there's a little different... Uh, idea, there's a transition of thought, you get a new paragraph. So contextually, you got seven verses in this first paragraph of First Chronicles 12. So here's what Dr. Hendricks would say to you. If you're going to study those seven verses, he would say, um, so what you do is you begin by reading the verses. And then the next thing you do is read it again. And then you read it again. And read it again. And read it again. At a minimum, you'd want to read it 10 times. Ideally, you should read it 30 times. 
Because every time you read it, he goes, well, why would you read it 30 times? He goes, every time you read it again, you see something you didn't see before. Because the key, one of the keys of Bible study is observation. And each time you read it, you're pulled in a little bit more and you're familiar, but you see, oh, shoot, I didn't see that before. Now, so what, let me show you what I mean. Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag. So you got to go, okay, all right, well, why was David at Ziklag? Here's another thing you do in Bible study. You can just ask questions. You know, they got the, the five interrogatives or the six, depending on how many you can remember. I may only remember two tonight. I don't know. Who? What? I actually took a class in journalism a long time ago. Long time ago. When there actually used to there used to be journalism. And what you were supposed to do was, as a journalist, you were supposed to report certain facts about a story. Not make them up, not spin them, not twist them, but you had a journalistic responsibility ethically to, res to report about the story. So you would ask questions. Who, what, when, where, how, why? I got six. It was drilled into me. Who, what, when, where, how, why? Just questions. Uh, so you read the text. You read it over, and you read it over, and you read it over. Now, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag. Now, we know who David is. But then you've got to ask, well, why was David at Ziklag? Well, the reason David was at Ziklag, this gets kind of interesting. Let's go back to a story everybody knows, uh, David and Goliath. Uh, we know about Goliath. He was the biggest man among the Philistines, and they were the arch enemies of the people of Israel. David shows up. His brother's in the army. His dad sends him up with some Subway sandwiches and some chips. Go see your brothers. See how they're doing. He goes up there, and he sees this uh, massive giant of a man. And he's mocking the people of Israel, and he's mocking the God of Israel. Oh, now, by the way, who was king at this time? Saul. Saul. Now, if you do your homework on Saul, you'll find out. By the way, you know who the biggest guy in Israel was? Saul. He was the biggest guy. He was the tallest. Saul was one of those guys. If he walked into a room, he looked like a leader. He just looked like a leader. Some guys look like leaders. Had the Hollywood good looks. He's big. He's fit. He just looks like he knows what he's doing. See, <clears throat> and we talked about some of this last year. There are two kinds of leaders. There are authentic leaders and there are synthetic leaders. We live in an age of synthetic leaders. A synthetic leader is someone who looks like a leader, but they don't have the heart for leadership. They just look like a leader. Uh, ever since the debate between Nixon and Kennedy on television, it's very important that a candidate um, looks good on television. If you're ugly, you're going to have a hard time getting elected. Because... I mean, you know, there are some people that are easy on the eye. There are some people that you just go, yeah, yeah. They, they, just, they just look good. It's very important in our world today. So you see, um, and once again, in, in relationship to all this, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the what? On the heart. Well, we look on the outward appearance. And if some guy looks like a leader... And if some guy can, can read a teleprompter, and if some guy can do this and this and say the right things, and there's a likability, well, dadgummit, we're going to vote for the guy. You see, because a lot of us are easily swayed by appearance. He looks like he knows what he's doing. Saul looked like he knew what he was doing. But when you follow Saul's life, basically, 
He didn't have a heart for leadership and he didn't have a heart for God. Who, who should have been walking across to go take on Goliath? The king should have been doing it, who just happened to be the biggest guy in the nation. But is Saul stepping up to take on Goliath? No, not Saul. Why? Because Saul didn't walk by faith in the living God. He was intimidated. He was afraid. He didn't think there was any way he could take that guy because he didn't believe in the power of God and the power of the cause. He gave it lip service, but it wasn't in his heart. So who shows up? David shows up, and David looks across there and goes, who is that? Who is that guy blaspheming God? He says, I'll take that sucker on. Now, Saul was the biggest guy. David was not a big guy. Uh, Saul was like a 50x extra long, you know. David was like a 38 regular. See, how do you know that? Well, they gave him Saul's armor to put on, and he just swam in it. David just said, being a man of faith, who walks by faith, has nothing to do with physical size, physical stature. It's about heart. You know the story. David went over there and took that sucker out. And then they started singing this song. It was really big on iTunes. <laughs> that stands for Israel tunes. Whatever that was. But they started singing this song after David killed Goliath, and the song was this. David, nope. Saul has slain his thousands. David his tens of thousands. Okay, now we got a problem. Why do we have a problem? Well, because you got an authentic leader and you got a synthetic leader. See, a synthetic leader looks like a leader, but has no heart for leadership and has no heart for God. They only have a heart for themselves and for maintaining their position and maintaining and holding on to their power. So Saul is the synthetic leader, and when an authentic leader with a heart for God shows up and by faith in God kills the giant and the people begin to honor him above the standing king, here's what happens when an authentic leader shows up. <laughs> the synthetic leader gets threatened. And then the synthetic leader has to destroy the authentic leader. And because of his jealousy, now Saul is going to have to destroy David because he can't put up with this. He wants the adulation, he wants the praise, he wants the glory, and he wants to hold on to his position. But because of his continual disobedience to God, the Spirit is taken away from him. David has been anointed, although it's quiet, to be the next king. And what Saul does is that Saul goes after David, and for the next 10 years or so, David is on the run for his life from Saul. That's why you come to 1 Chronicles 12. These are the ones who came to David at Ziklag. Why was David at Ziklag? Because he's running from Saul. Because Saul's trying to kill him. Because Saul was threatened and Saul had to destroy him. All because Saul didn't walk by faith and David did walk by faith. Uh, why was he at Ziklag? Well... What does the text say? While he was still restricted because of Saul, the son of Kish. Uh, they were among the mighty men who helped him in war. Who, who are the ones that helped him in war? Well, these are the ones who came to David at Ziklag. Uh, this, this is what's going on here. So David's on the run because Saul hates his guts. He was on the run for 10 years. And he was restricted, it says, because of Saul. In other words, Saul would send men out to hunt for David. And so David uh, could hardly spend the night at the same place. And he's always running around, but he's restricted. There's a certain area they've got him hemmed in and hemmed in and hemmed in and hemmed in.
And at times, what David would literally do was he would hide out in the caves. Uh, take a look, if you would, at uh, Psalm 142. Psalm 142, if you look at the inscription before verse 1, it said a mascal, uh, an instruction, a teaching is a mascal. A mascal of David, watch this, when he was in what? The cave. Okay. I cry aloud with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my trouble before him. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. He's in the cave. He's surrounded. He's worn out. He's exhausted. Turn over to Psalm 57. Here's another cave psalm. Once again, look at the inscription. A mikthum of David. A mikthum of David when he fled from Saul, here we go, in the cave. <clears throat> You, you ever get, you ever get worn out? Have you ever hit a wall? When we use that phrase, I've hit a wall, what does that mean? I, I'm done. I got nothing left. <laughs> That's where David was in these cave psalms. Can you imagine being on the run for 10 years? You got a guy with all of these resources, you got a guy sending hundreds and hundreds of soldiers out to, uh, on a manhunt. And David had so many times in his life where he was, he was burrowed in to a small cave. Um, we've talked in here about it in Getty. And Gedi is, um, you got Jerusalem up on top, and then the Judean hills come down, and then it bottoms out, and you got the Judean desert, and you got the Dead Sea. Uh, this in Gedi is, is you, you go west from the Dead Sea, and you're starting to make your way up the hills, and in Gedi is an oasis. And there is this stream of clear water that flows down. And you, when you go there, you park your bus, and it, it's a canyon, and the walls are very steep. And you make your way up along the riverbank, and there's these big rocks and boulders and very steep walls. And as you're making your way up, as the guide leads you up, uh, you know what you see on the, uh, you see caves. They're everywhere. And you go out, you hike up for about 30 minutes, and you come to this waterfall. It's about, uh, it's dropping about 20, 25 feet. And I've been there in the summer, and it's hot as blazes. And that water, that pure spring-fed water coming down from the mountain drops. And you get under the waterfall, it's great. And I remember our Israeli guide. Everybody's just enjoying it, you know, taking a break. And he said, hey, come here, I want to show you something. And we went around that pool and back around that wall. And uh, my daughter was with me. And we walked around, and suddenly there was an opening. There was this cave. It was probably the entrance 25, 30 feet high. You remember the story when Saul went into the cave to read the sports page? <laughs> you remember that story? You remember it. And David and his men were burrowed way back deep, and he didn't know it. And David kind of Apaches up to him and 
just clips the end of his garment. And I'm looking at the mouth of that cave, and that story comes back to me. Because I said, how far back does that go? He goes, pretty far. But you couldn't see, you couldn't see 25 feet in there. Now, was that the cave? I don't know. Could have been. Uh, and then Saul went back, got his guys, and then they're heading out looking for David. And see, because it's all so steep, they went on the other side of that uh, little flowing river, and we're going up the other side. And David came out and could call to him, and he could see David. And David said, hey, look what I got. I could have killed you, and I didn't. But see, they were so close they could have a conversation. But they just couldn't run down and get David because the time they could make their way down through the rocks and up the other side, David and his guys would be gone. But it was all that, it was that constricted, you see. This went on for 10 years. For 10 years, David was on the run. But he wasn't by himself. Why wasn't he by himself? Well, look at, uh, let's go back to, where are we? First Chronicles 12. Look at the next verse. He had some men that were with him, and they were men from all over Israel who came to join him. Uh, the first group of guys that are mentioned are Saul's relatives. It says, they were, in verse 2, they were equipped with bows, using both the right hand and the left to sling stones and to shoot arrows from the bow. They were Saul's kinsmen from Benjamin. And then you get a listing all the way down through the rest of this chapter of the different men who came to join David. But the first group is mentioned are the guys that were related by blood to Saul, and Saul was the king, but they were sick and tired of a synthetic leader. They were sick and tired of a guy who just looked like a leader but didn't have a heart for leadership. They were sick and tired of a king who wasn't walking by faith, trusting in the Lord. You see, he didn't have the heart for leadership. But David, with all his flaws, was a man after God's own heart. God always looks at the heart. Always. Here's the deal. When we come to know Christ and we begin to pursue Christ and follow Christ, let me tell you what's going to happen. You're going to find yourself in a cave at some point. You're going to find yourself burrowed in. You're going to find yourself surrounded. You're going to find yourself exhausted. You are going to find yourself, and you're going to think to yourself, I'm not sure I can go on. In fact, you're not going to say, I'm not sure. You're going to say, I can't go on. I have hit a wall, and you're hemmed in by circumstances. And the problem with caves is there's usually just one way out, and you're surrounded, and you don't see any way out. This happens in the Christian life. Um, it's not a pleasant experience. It can be uh, through a thousand different circumstances, but you find yourself in a cave, surrounded, and uh, you, you... And what happens is you begin to lose your hope. Uh, turn with me to Psalm 42. Here's what happens. When life gets hard and life gets difficult and we get uh, fatigued and we get worn out, when life gets hard, really hard, and the Christian life is hard, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how often we turn to the Psalms. Why? Because so many of the Psalms give us a glimpse into human emotion and human feelings when life gets extremely difficult. The guy in Psalm 42 um, makes this phrase, and we looked at this psalm a number of times, but look at verse 5. He says, why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? See, there, when you're in the cave, when you're in the cave, there, there's a reason you're in the cave. Well, I've got this, I've got this closing in on me, uh, you know, I don't know how we're going to make it financially. I don't know how we're going to make it. I mean, everything is, everything is getting tapped out. The, the old Puritan pastors would use a phrase. 
they would talk about deadness of means. Deadness of means. Deadness of means is when you run out of cash. Deadness of means is when is the day that you've hit every possible credit line you've ever had, and you go to the ATM and it comes up zero. And there's no other credit line to tap, and there's no I mean, you're done. You've, you've borrowed from Uncle Charlie, you, you borrowed from your grandma, you, but you're tapped out. It's just over. There's no flow of cash. You, it's deadness of means. You know how you're going to make it. Or uh, on a health issue, you, you get news from the, it's this, and it's this, and this, and you, and you well, what does this mean? This doesn't look good. No, it doesn't look good. Uh, it can be marriage. It can be a thousand different things. But the normal resources that you have counted on are suddenly not there. It's Elijah having to go on the run from Ahab and Jezebel, and God puts him at this little brook, and he drinks from the water, and the ravens feed him. That was a pretty neat deal because God supernaturally provided for him. You know, but you know what happened to him after a while? The brook went dry. That's called deadness of means. It's no water. you got to have water. And the ravens were bringing him food, which is in, really interesting, because ravens are notorious for not even feeding their own young. So God, what God did was, he took the least likely to be the ones that were the purveyors of provision to Elijah, and he gave him a little time to rest up. But then what happens? The brook dries up. Oh my gosh, what am I going to do now? The brook has dried up. Well, now you're going to have walk by faith. But the water is dry. Well, where am I going to get, where, where am I going to get food? And once again, Elijah was under a manhunt. You see? He was by the brook. He might as well have been in a cave because it was an obscure place, and he was away from the main street of life. But he was going to have to get out, and he was going to have to start moving and expose himself, and he didn't want to do it. He, and by the way, Elijah was depressed. See, when we find ourselves in a cave with no way out and with deadness of means, and we don't have the resources, in fact, the resources are being cut off, we get depressed and we get discouraged and we're about going into despair and we hit the wall, we lose our strength and we lose our courage and it's a bad place to be and God often puts his men there. Why would he put us there? Ah, <laughs> because he wants to make us into men of faith. He wants to make us into men who have strong faith. Yeah, well what, well, what does that have to do with faith? Well, let me ask you something. How do you get faith? How does your faith grow? How does your faith become strong? Your faith becomes strong by seeing yourself in a situation where you are hemmed in, where you are locked in, with absolutely no earthly way of delivering yourself. And if God doesn't deliver you, you are done, you are finished, you are toast. You don't even have the emotional juice to go on. And then what does God do? He makes a way. And he delivers you. And here's what happens. When he makes a way and delivers you, what does it do for you? It staggers you. It astonishes you because you just got out of a hopeless situation. Has this ever happened to you? And when that happens to you, you know what happens? Suddenly you got faith. Because God has delivered to you. And you say, this is great, because I'll never be in another cave again. <laughs> now, where'd you get that? See, here's what's going to happen. Down the road, down the road, at some point, there's going to be another cave. But see, here's the deal. The next time you hit a cave, your faith is going to be stronger. Why? Because you were in a cave. And he delivered you, and he made a way. Because, you see, we go from faith to what? Faith. Well, if God delivered me out of that, I saw no possible. Well, you know, he can deliver me out of this. This is how we grow in faith. 
First um, Corinthians 10, verse uh, 13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And Now watch this. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. And see, here's the thing. See, when you hit the wall, uh, God knows that. He knows that. He knows why you've hit the wall. He absolutely knows it better than you do. He understands our thought from afar. See, God knows how to diagnose us. And his diagnosis is always right on target. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way, watch this, of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Isn't that interesting? John Flavel, the old Puritan pastor from Dartmouth, England, was commenting on this verse. And in speaking to Christians, he said this. And, and he pulls out three things about when we find ourselves in a cave. And contextually, he was talking about the cave psalms. He said three things. Number one. He has either strengthened your back to bear when you think you can't go on, or, number two, he has lightened your burden, or, number three, he has opened an unexpected door of escape. So you got three options when you hit the wall, and when you panic, and when you're exhausted, and when you're tired, and when you don't see any way out. So what's the first one? He'll strengthen your back. He'll give you more strength. Here's the second one. Or he will lighten your load. Or number three, he will open an unexpected door of escape. Uh, when you're in the cave, you want out of the cave. But sometimes he keeps us in the cave and it's not time to get out. So why would he keep you in a cave? Why would he keep you in those circumstances? There are valuable lessons of faith that you only learn in the cave. You can't learn them anywhere else. And see, he wants us to become mature men. Flip over to Psalm 130. In Psalm 130, this guy's not in a cave, he's in the depths. Well, it depends on what, where your cave is. Sometimes the caves go into the depths. Carlsbad Cavern goes down to the depths. If you've ever been there, 48 stories below the earth. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. This, uh, when you see that word cry, that's what it means. It's a cry of desperation. Uh, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. There's a lot of emotion. There's a lot of passion. There's, there's desperation here. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. So he is crying out for mercy and help for God because he's in the depths. All right, let's take ocean depths for a minute. Down in the depths of the oceans, you got two things. And every once in a while, we've, over the years, you know, there'll be tragedies with submarines. Some of you guys remember the USS Thresher. You remember the USS Scorpion? Those are subs we lost. They went down thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of feet. 
Did you ever see the movie Das Boot? That's worth watching, even with subtitles. It's about a German U-boat, and they're going down in the depths. That's a bad way to die. That's a real bad way to die. Because what do you have in the ocean depths? Well, the further down you go, here's number one. The first thing you have is pressure. Unbelievable pressure. And as that sub is out of control and going down and down and down in the depths, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, you can literally hear the sub breaking up because of the pressure. Here's the other thing you got in the ocean depths. You have unbelievable darkness. Can't see your hand. So you take those two things, unbelievable pressure and unbelievable darkness, and sometimes that's what you experience in the cave. The pressure is so great, you have hit the wall and you have got nothing left. So why does God allow his men to find themselves in that position? C.H. Spurgeon said this. I remember reading this years ago on his commentary on Psalm 130. You're reading, you're reading his thing on Psalm 130, the depths, the depths, the depths. And then out of nowhere, he says this. Just out of nowhere, he goes, he, he says this. He goes, pearls lie deep. That was it. Any of you guys buy uh, your wife pearls at Valentine's Day? Probably not. <laughs> oh, why not? Pearls are expensive. Why are pearls expensive? Because they're valuable. First time we went to <clears throat> Hawaii, we found this beach down on the south tip of Maui, down there one night. And it was really wild because there weren't many people down on that beach on that south end. And we were just walking on the beach one night. And uh, I mean, there weren't, I couldn't see five people on that beach because it was on the remote side. And we're walking and the sun's going down. And it was beautiful. Mary and I are walking. And I started seeing these little glimmers in, in, the, in the sand. You know, the water would come in and then it would recede. And I'd see these little glimmers and I reached down and there were pearls. You could reach down and pick up these pearls. It was unbelievable. Now, that's not a true story. <laughs> it's a good story, but it's not true. Pearls don't wash up on the seashore. Pearls lie deep. When I was there in Maui, some churches had brought me over to do a men's deal. And a couple of these pastors, their hobby, they were free divers. I said, what's a free diver? They're insane. <laughs> they do it the old way. The Hawaiians have done it for years and years. They free dive. They, they go down in the depths without oxygen, without suits. And the old pearl divers... See, where are pearls? They lie deep. How deep? Down where it's dark, down where there's unbelievable pressure. And you've got to train yourself to become a, a free diver because you're going to go down 80, 100, 120, 140 feet. And those suckers just go down. And that's where you find the pearls. Why do we find ourselves in the depths? There are valuable lessons that you'll find nowhere else that you're going to need to get through life. So you're going to find yourself in the darkness and you're going to find yourself in the pressure. And you're going to learn that God can be trusted even in the worst circumstances of your life. God uh, tests our faith. 
Remember that passage in James? Count it joy. Consider it joy. Think it is joy. When you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. I have a friend, John Brandon. And I met John. He was 21. I was 27 or 28. I've mentioned him before. Uh, John's... Uh, John always thought he was going to go to Dallas Seminary and be a pastor, and it never quite worked out. We used to have conversations late at night. Because he came out of college, and he got a job in Silicon Valley and for Texas Instruments, just selling computers. And he did pretty well, but he really was still thinking about Dallas Seminary. And then something else came along, and something came along, and something came... Well, he's in his early 40s, and he's offered the CEO position of a new startup. You know how that works in Silicon Valley, you know. And you have these venture capitalists up on Sand Hill Boulevard in Menlo Park. There's more money there than anywhere else in the world. And see, those guys buy into Google and Facebook and all the guys coming out of Stanford. There's a startup. And the guy who was really probably the most successful venture capitalist in the world at that time is where the startup um, recommends John as their new CEO, and they're going to get another round of funding. So John is in his early 40s. He's been on the job for three days. They're going in to meet with some of the most powerful venture capitalists in the world to get this next round of funding. And that's how he starts. He's kind of thrown in the deep end. And John tells the story, and by the way, it's interesting because John never did go to Dallas Seminary. He always had a desire for ministry. But where John goes, he goes to, you can go online and listen to this. John speaks at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He speaks at Duke, business school at Stanford, at Wharton. He goes in all these business schools because he's had a remarkable career and has had a lot of success. But they have him come in because he speaks on ethics. Oh, and what John speaks on is telling the truth, which is kind of a rare thing. So John goes in and speaks at these business schools because he's had quite a career. And he tells these students this story that uh, he's been a CEO for three days, and they're going in the next day up to make this presentation and they make it, and it goes incredibly well. Incredibly well. It goes so well that this top venture capitalist has all the other investors there, brings out champagne, you know, they toast John, da, 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 it's, uh, everybody's high-fiving, they go back to the office, they're just, they're just pumped. It couldn't have gone any better. And John said, hey, let's, this is great, let's enjoy it, but let's get together at 4.30 and just kind of debrief here before the day's over. Gets his team together. And he pulls him in, and he says, all right, that was great. It was wonderful. Great job. He said, let me, let's just talk for a minute. What are the risks now? What are the risks? And everybody's quiet. And go, what do you mean, what are the risks? And one of the guys said, uh, have you seen that email from Kathy? And John says, who's Kathy? Well, she's the corporate controller. She's been out on maternity leave. Did you get her email? No. Well, let me print it out for you. He prints it out, and this email from this gal, Kathy, basically said all the numbers that were used to make that presentation today are wrong. <laughs> and one of the founders, one of the founders, he sees the concern in John's face. And he goes, hey, John, you don't know how this works. It's going to be okay. I don't think you get this. John said, I don't think you get securities fraud. The guy says, no. It's going to be fine. This is how it works. We'll go ahead. Da, da, da. And then we won't meet our numbers, but it's kind of how the game's played. He said, so what are you going to do, John? John said, I'm going home because I got a headache, and I'm going to start making calls at 7 in the morning and telling the investors those numbers are wrong. Guy said, you can't do that. He said, I'm going to do it. And the next morning, he calls that top guy. And he said, the numbers are wrong. And that guy hit the roof because he had backed John. 
He hit the roof. Second guy calls in New York. He really hits the roof. And all morning he's calling. Just before lunch, he calls this gal, head of this big investor, you know, they're in millions and millions. Of, and he says, hey, uh, this is John Brand. He goes, oh, hi, John, how's it going? He goes, well, not real well. She said, oh, I guess you saw the numbers. And he said, did someone call you? She said, no. No, no one called me, but we had done our homework. He said, you knew? She goes, oh, yeah, we knew. We were just wondering how long it would take you to know, and we were wondering if you would call us and tell us. And you've called us and told us. Nobody pulled out. They all stayed in. And you know what they told him? Yeah, the numbers were squeamish. They were worse than squeamish. The numbers were bad. But we're not investing in the numbers. We're investing in you. Now, you know what's interesting about that? All night long, John thought he was going to be a CEO for four days. <laughs> and his career would be over. In fact, the, the founding partner said, listen, you're done, man. You don't do this. You know what you're going to be doing in 30 days? You're going to be laying this, everybody off in this company. And John's staying up, I'm going to be a CEO for four days, and I'm going to be a failure, and I had my shot, and it's over. Do you think there was pressure? Sure. <laughs> Do you think there was darkness? Do you think he felt hemmed in? His career was on the line because the most powerful people in Silicon Valley were backing him. But see, John had made a decision that he was going to follow Christ, and he was going to walk by faith, and he was going to be a truth teller. And he told the truth. And he had no clue what was going to happen. But he was going to follow the shepherd. Um, can I show you something? One last verse. Psalm 57. Oh, by the way, do you think uh, John's faith was built out of that situation? I'd say it was. Because he had many more coming down the road. Look at uh, Psalm 57, verse 2. Man, I have lived off this verse many, many times. Once again, he's in the cave. He is under tremendous pressure. He's asking God to be, to be gracious. My soul takes refuge in you. Under the shadow of your wings, I take refuge until destruction passes by. Once again, he's surrounded by Saul's guys. He doesn't know if he's going to live. He, know. He, he just doesn't know. And what does he say? I will cry. And that, once again, there's that word cry. That's, that's desperation. It's absolute desperation. I will cry unto God most high. He's under incredible pressure. He's surrounded. He's exhausted. He's out of gas. He has hit the wall, and he sees no escape. And what does he say? I will cry to God most high. Watch this. To God who accomplishes all things for me. The ESV says to God, who will accomplish his purpose for me. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will sin from heaven and save me. It's the same principle in Psalm 42. Same principle. We left the guy in Psalm 42 in depression in the cave, under the pressure, in the darkness. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Why are, you all, why are you up all night? Why are you trying to figure out how you're going to be delivered? You don't, it's deadness of means. You are hemmed in. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Watch this. And then he says it to himself. He says it to himself. Hope in God, I shall again praise him for the help of his saving acts. 
You ever been in a cave that you thought you'd never get out of? And then let me ask you this. And God got you out? I'd just like a show of hands. You ever seen God deliver you when you thought there was no deliverance? Okay. And then I have another question for you. Did you find yourself later in another cave? And did he get you out when there was no way out? Okay. And let me press my point. Maybe did you run into another cave down the road again? Anybody? I'm just, I'm serious. Anybody? Oh, yeah. And what did he do there? Okay. And you're in a cave now? Why would he not make a way for you? Since he's your savior. Yeah, but this, uh, they're telling me I'm terminal. Well, Dr. Hendricks died today. We're all terminal. Well, death might get me. It will get you. But Jesus said, he who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he, what? He will deliver you until your appointed time, and at the appointed time you die, he still delivers you. Does he not? So you had a gasp, you worn out, you exhausted, you got nothing left. Man, I've been there. Dr. Hendricks had been there. I love the Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And I love that participle that's in there, which means you translate it like this. For by grace you have been saved with continuing results. What does that mean? He just keeps on saving. All your life, he keeps on saving. Doesn't mean we don't have pressure. Doesn't mean things don't happen that are hard and difficult. But there's a reason we're in the depths. You come out, by the way, you come out of the cave, you come out of the depths, and you're a better man coming out than you were going in because you got pearls in your arms. Pearls of wisdom, pearls of faith, pearls of trust, pearls of a history of a faithful God that gets you ready for what he's got next for you. There's a reason and there's a purpose. So we walk by faith, even when we're out of gas, and he'll give you the gas when you need it. It's either true or it isn't, and it's true. Thank you, Father, for your greatness, your promise. You sustain us. You give us what we need. When we can't take a step, you carry us. You just flat out carry us. Deuteronomy 1, I carried you like a father carries a little boy. And there are times we can't take a step. We don't have... We're just, and you just carry us. You just flat out carry us. What a Savior. We honor you. We live off this truth and this hope in Jesus' name. Amen.